All throughout the service today, uh, there's a psalm that's been in my mind, and uh, you don't all have the opportunity to do this, uh, but I'm up here and I can do what I want sometimes, and so uh, I'd love to hear you sing it. Would that be okay? Uh, those of you who don't know, I think you'll be able to figure it out, but it just, it's been kind of the theme this morning, and it goes like this. Would you sing with me? When peace like a river attendeth my soul. Oh, no, that's not right, is it? When sorrow, did I mess it up? Like sea billows roll, whatever my lot. God has taught me, God has taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well. That's a little bonus for you who came on Time Change Sunday, March Break Sunday, and Snow Sunday all the same day. So you guys are awesome. How many of you are ready to study God's Word today? Now we have something different today. We have a note-taking guide. And so we have people back at the, uh, at the entrances, our ushers. If you did not get one of those note-taking guides when you came in, I promise it would be helpful for you. So if you would hold your hand up high and they will bring one to you. Uh, I think we even have some folks up in the, in the balcony. If you could make sure that anybody who raises their hand gets one of those note-taking guides. We have uh, right down here on the front row as well and uh, all throughout. Okay, all throughout. We'll give you a minute to get those in hand. And last week we started this series called Bible Basics where we're talking about studying the Bible in our lives. And, and in particular, last week we began this question of how do we study and interpret some of these passages that sometimes are difficult for us to understand. And so I gave you a number of resources last week that you can utilize in your small groups and in your Bible classes and in your own personal Bible study. We also talked last week just a little bit about the challenge of translating the original Hebrew and Greek language of the Old Testament and the New Testament into English or French or any other language. People who only speak one language sometimes have difficulty understanding how it's not just as simple as word-for-word -word translation. That, that, that there, is a, there are decisions that have to be made. And that's why we have a number of different English translations, not because they are in disagreement with each other, but because translating something from another language, from Hebrew and Greek, into English or French or whatever language you read your Bible in is, is an ongoing process of, of discernment and, and study and, and application. And so we also talked about the danger of just trusting everything you read on the internet. Amen? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, in fact, can you imagine 
How many problems in North American society would be solved if we just went by that statement? Don't believe everything you read on the internet. That would solve a lot of problems in our culture, wouldn't it? Okay, but uh, we also talked most importantly about how to approach God's word with an open mind and a soft heart that says, God, teach me something new today. And that when we do that, God begins to speak. I hope you had fun last week. In fact, the dialogue has continued online. Uh, that we've had, uh, those of you who are on social media, who know uh, the church Facebook page or have friended me, uh, that, that I've answered a number of those questions concerning uh, the King James and modern translations and how to interpret uh, various passages when there are differences in translation and actually utilized, showed this week online how to utilize some of those tools that we looked at last week, like net.bible.org. Blue Letter Bible is another fantastic resource online, Blue Letter Bible. But here's the question that we're going to tackle today. The question that we're going to tackle today is, why should I believe the Bible? Why should I believe that it is true? Many people think that this is just a, a book of, of fairy tales, that it's, it's made up, that, that there is no relevance for, or power for today's life, but that's the question that it really comes down to. Why should I believe the Bible? And today, we are going to try to answer three questions. Number one, we're going to try to answer the question, is it authentic? Is it authentic in terms of what we have today? Is it true to what was originally written thousands of years ago? Number two, we're going to try to answer the question, is it accurate? Even if it's actually what they wrote, were they telling the truth about history? And then number three, is it authoritative? Is there power, supernatural power, in the Word of God? Now for anyone here today and anyone watching online with us today, uh, understand that our goal is not just ever here on Sundays to provide for you all of the answers, but, but our goal is to try to encourage you and inspire you to go and study God's Word for yourself. If you begin to study God's Word for yourself, then what we're doing here on Sundays is being successful. So, the first two questions. Number one, is it authentic? And number two, is it accurate? We're going to tackle those first. And remember we said last week that the Bible is not just one book, it is actually a collection of 66 books by more than 40 different authors from various walks of life. Some of the authors were fishermen and philosophers, peasants and kings, scholars and tax collectors, poets and doctors. It was written over a period of over 1,600 years on three different continents and containing three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And for the most part, the authors claim that they are telling us real stories of real places and events. For example, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully invested 
investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So that's the, the person. He was literally writing this letter to a person named Theophilus. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke said this is not just some made-up story. Luke, who was a doctor, says, I put my skills to work. I researched. I, I interviewed the eyewitnesses who were there and saw all of these events with Jesus with their own eyes. And that's great. But is it true? And so the question that we're going to, to look at in your notes, first of all, if you want to get ready to, to fill some of these in, is number... Uh, one, we're going to look at the evidence for reliability. When a scholar is looking at an ancient document, not just scripture, but any ancient document, in order to determine its reliability, there are two primary questions that they ask. First of all, how many copies of the manuscripts, let's go back, how many, let's go back one screen, there we go, how many copies of the manuscripts are still around? And then secondly, how similar are they to one another? Because the more ancient copies that you have of that document, not that you have the original. There are, there are hardly any original ancient documents. What we have are old copies of, of ancient documents from Roman society and Greek society and on and on. And so the, the number of copies that you have and how similar they are to one another and we'll see in just a minute, the older the copies that we have are, the more likely they are to be accurate to the original writing. So in your notes, let's go to number one. In your no notes, uh, the vast number of ancient manuscripts is evidence for the reliability of the New Testament. Now, many people don't realize the way that this works as documents are carried down throughout the centuries is when, when the original writers of the New Testament, Peter and, and Paul and, and uh, James and Matthew and John, sat down to write, they wrote the original copy, and then they didn't put it in a, in a museum and it stayed there. They, they then had scribes make multiple copies, and they sent them around to the churches all throughout the Roman Empire to cities like Ephesus and Antioch and Corinth. And, and so, so then they would make copies and, and they would distribute those copies. And that continued down through the centuries. So we don't have the original one that John himself wrote, but as those copies continued throughout the centuries, we have ancient copies of those. And so when it comes to the evidence for reliability with the New Testament, the vast number of ancient manuscripts we still have to this day and are even still discovering afresh to this day is evidence for reliability. Look at, let's look at some other uh, ancient documents to compare. I give you a little graph there, uh, a chart that you can fill out in your notes. An example is Plato's Tetralogy. Some of you uh, remember studying the philosophy of Plato when you were in in high school or in college. There are seven ancient manuscripts uh, from, they're only a little over a thousand years old, the oldest ones we have today from around 900 AD, and we'll get to that in just a minute and talk a little more about that. But then in Caesar's Gaelic Wars, you know Julius Caesar, the founder of the Roman Empire, uh, there were about 10 
early manuscript copies and fragments. In Homer's Iliad, and you remember reading the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer, 643, so there were a lot of those. But what about the New Testament? Did you know that the New Testament has over 24,300 ancient copies? And that when scholars compare those ancient Greek copies of the New Testament and fragments that are continuing to be discovered, that the differences are minor and inconsequential, none of which change the meaning of the passage in which they are found. Another evidence for the authenticity of the New Testament is number two, the relatively short interval between authorship dates and manuscript dates. So what that means is the shorter the time span between when Paul sits down and writes 1 Corinthians and the oldest copy that we have of 1 Corinthians, the shorter the time span, the more likely a scholar is to acknowledge that the copy that we have today is accurate to what was originally written. So let's compare that to some of those ancient documents that we looked at. Plato's Tetralogies was written in 380 BC. The oldest fragment that we have today is from 900 AD. That is an interval of 1,280 years. Caesar's Gaelic Wars was written in 60 BC. The earliest fragment that we have is, again, from 900 AD. That is an interval of 900 and 60 years. Homer's Iliad was written in 850 BC. The earliest fragment is really old from 350 BC. That is an interval of 500 years. But what about the New Testament? The New Testament, the oldest, or I'm sorry, the, the last book believed by scholars to be written in the New Testament is the Gospel of John. That it was the last one in the New Testament that was written. If that is true, uh, the date is somewhere around 90 A.D. when the Gospel of John was written. Do you know that we have a fragment today in a library in the University of Manchester? You can go ahead and look it up. Look up John 18. It's from John 18. John 18 papyrus, because that's what the, the paper was made out of, papyrus leaves. And uh, if you look it up, you can see the picture of it. It is from 125 A.D. That is an interval of only 35 years. Folks, the, that is the shortest time span of any ancient work. F.F. Uh, Bruce of the University of Manchester says the, the evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. And so that's the, the New Testament. Let's talk a little bit about the Old Testament. So let's go to the next section in your notes. How do we know that it has not changed? Number one, the consistency of manuscripts over an incredibly long time span. Now, this is so cool. This is, this is such an amazing story concerning the Old Testament. In 1896, there was a, a, an author, a scholar named Sir Frederick Kenyon. And in 1896, Sir Frederick Kenyon wrote 
the definitive book of the day on ancient manuscripts. It was called Our Bible and Ancient Manuscripts. And in that definitive scholarly work that was well-respected, he claimed that he believed that never would any historian or any archaeologist ever find any copy of the Old Testament older in Hebrew than the Masoretic text. Now, what is the Masoretic text? I'm glad you asked. The Masoretic text was written somewhere between 950 AD on the early end of the scale to 1050 AD, somewhere in that time frame. Uh, there are, are, are various copies of it, but there are, are some that are, are kind of considered to be the definitive copies. And they are the, were the oldest Hebrew Bibles in existence at the time that Sir Frederick Kenyon wrote that. Uh, the Masoretic text were written by a group of scribes called the Masoretes. That's why they're called the Masoretic text. In fact, a funny story uh, that I, I, I love to tell because I'm a Bible geek is the last time we were in Israel, uh, I had an amazing moment in the Museum of Antiquities and the place where they keep uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls in, uh, in Jerusalem. And in that museum, I've been there a number of times before, but did not realize that they had a new display. And Tracy can tell you, I'm not lying, that I came around the corner, did not realize they had this new exhibit. And, and there, as I walked around the corner, there it was, this Bible that I had been studying for, uh, for so many years, the Mesoritic text from a thousand years ago. There it was, literally on display under heavy, heavy glass where they wouldn't let me touch it. And I screamed like a hockey mom running into Brad Pitt. I, I, I was so excited. To me, that was better than meeting a celebrity to see with my own eyes the Masoretic text. So Sir Frederick Kenyon's book was republished in the year 1940. And in 1940, again, those scholars agreed with his claim. In 1940 that there would never be found any copy of the Hebrew Old Testament older than the Masoretic text from 950 AD. That is until just seven years later. Seven years later, there was a young Arab boy who was walking along with his sheep beside in the land near the Dead Sea, not right along the water of the Dead Sea, but very, very close to it. And as he's walking along down here, you see in the picture, it pointing to these caves. He was throwing rocks up into these caves and he heard a shattering sound. And so he scrambled up the cliff into the cave where he had thrown that rock. And there he found a pottery jar that he had broken with that rock and inside it, an ancient document. And so scholars came and they, they began to search all of these caves and what they found are what we today call the what? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Exactly. The Dead Sea Scrolls. And so as they, uh, as they dug and, and as they opened up these, these jars and, and, and studied these Dead Sea Scrolls, they found that they were most likely written by the Essenes who lived in a community right here by the Dead Sea called Qumran. And there uh, they had copied the Bible all the books of the Bible, 
every single one except for Esther. And do you know the reason they didn't use Esther? Is because the Essenes, the, this ancient Jewish community, uh, felt that every book of the Bible should have the name of God in it. And the book of Esther does not contain, interesting fact, if you read through Esther, it does not contain the name of God in that book. So they didn't bother with that one. But all the other books of the Old Testament in Hebrew, every single book was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls from around the time of Jesus. So before the time of Jesus, even into the era BC, but later on into 30 AD and beyond is when this community was in existence. And so historians obviously thought, now we are going to finally be able to prove the corruption of the Bible. Now we can finally have a comparison to see how over this period of a, around a thousand years, errors and changes and modifications will have been made to the Hebrew Bible. But what did they find? What did they find? They found that there were very few variations over that 1,000 years, which I think is kind of amazing. I can't even sign my name the same way twice. And they were accurately transcribing the Bible for all of these years, thousands of years ago. The primary difference, by the way, between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic Text, and, oh my goodness, uh, sorry, I'm adding all kinds of stuff that I wasn't planning on talking about. But just a little side note, is that ancient Hebrew did not have any vowels. So the ancient Hebrew Bible only had consonants. And so you knew, you had to know how to pronounce the Hebrew word. It only had consonants. The Masoretes had gone ahead and added in vowels so that you knew how to pronounce a word when you saw it on the page. That was the only uh, primary difference between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic text. So what did they find when they compared them? The scholars were amazed and some were disappointed because they thought their research would destroy the credibility of the Bible when in fact the opposite was true. It helped prove the Bible's historic credibility. So we have evidence for authenticity. We have that, but what about accuracy? How do we know the stories that it tells are true? Number two, we have the continuing archaeological confirmation of disputed historical details. Let me read some excerpts from an article in the Associated Press. The Associated Press, the newspapers reported, from the northern hills of Israel to the desert of Yemen, a string of recent archaeological discoveries have provided the first hard evidence for several biblical figures and events, many of which had been widely dismissed as myths and moral tales. Individually, the discoveries are important, but together they are shaking the field of biblical archaeology and buttressing words that believers have taken on faith. The most important of the new discoveries is evidence for the existence of King David. David's story is an exciting tale of murder, adultery, deceit, and extraordinary faith and courage. The story is so fantastic that many biblical scholars have long thought that David must be made up. 
Then came what Seymour Gitton of the W.F. Albright Institute of Research in East Jerusalem calls one of the greatest finds of the 20th century. In 1993, Israeli archaeologists digging in the Golan Heights unearthed a piece of stone from an ancient monument. Inscribed upon it in ancient Aramaic were the words, King of Israel and House of David. The story so shook some scholars that they insisted the find was phony or the inscription was incorrectly translated. A year later, however, archaeologists found more fragments of the monument with additional inscriptions referring to the ancient king. Today, the new scholarly consensus is that David was real, not just because the Bible says so. This is in the newspaper article says Ronnie Reich of the Israeli Antiquities Authority, but because archaeology has found it. If you've never studied archaeology, I'm telling you, maybe I just think it's cool because I'm a geek for Bible stuff, but it is so much fun to see again and again places like Shechem that have been discovered that historians said it doesn't exist, or Ekron, where the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant, and historians said it doesn't exist, but then archaeology found it. In 1988, in Jerusalem, an actual piece of Solomon's temple was found with the inscription, Holy to the Priests, belonging to the temple of Yahweh. Not just because the Bible says so, but because archaeology has found it. And so, here's what all this means to me. Think about this. You need less faith today to believe the Bible than people who lived even 50 years ago. Because each year, archaeologists, even those who don't want to help the Bible, is, is this the authentic writing or has it been corrupted and changed? And we found that no, it is authentic to what was originally written. Number two, is it accurate? Is it talking about real people and real places? Yes. And then number three, here's the big question. Is it authoritative? Does it have supernatural power? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, the whole Bible was given to us by inspiration from God. And so let's look at a few pieces of evidence for divine inspiration. Number one is the fulfilled prophecies that have taken place in general. Fulfilled prophecies. Spend some time researching for yourself. Prophecies all throughout the, the Bible from Ezekiel and Isaiah, even in the New Testament, like the Apostle John. The Bible foretold things that would happen hundreds of years later, and it came to be just as God said it would. But even more amazing are number two, the specific prophecies from the Old Testament concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And you see there in your notes, the most explicit, the most amazing of these is Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, we find that, uh, and you can look it up on your own, and we're, uh, we're not going to read through it right now, but you can, on your own time, look up Isaiah 53 this afternoon, and you will see an explicit description that is so accurate 
about the life and death of Jesus. No one could read Isaiah 53 and say, oh, no, 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 that's not talking about Jesus because it is so clearly talking about Jesus the Messiah. And guess what? Isaiah lived and wrote these things 700 years before Jesus. There has to be something supernatural at work in this book. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. Some of them, many of them, 700 years before Jesus that were literally fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. And I didn't give you 300 in your notes, but you see that I gave you 12. That you could just go ahead this afternoon and look up just 12 of the 300 and ask yourself, what are the chances that these could have been accurate hundreds of years prior without the inspiration of Almighty God? It's so good. I think you're going to find it encouraging. Here's another evidence for divine inspiration. Number three, this one's kind of fun. The Bible just won't go away. Uh, Ken Boa and uh, Larry Moody write that the scriptures have survived through time, persecution, and criticism. There have been numerous attempts to burn, ban, and systematically eliminate the Bible, but all have failed. The Bible has been subjected to more abuse, perversion, destructive criticism, and pure hate than any other book, and yet it continues to stand the test of time while its critics are refuted and forgotten. Look at the Guinness Book of World Records. It says that there are uh, over 5 billion copies of the Bible that have been made in the last 200 years, unlike any other book human history has ever seen. It's translated into over 2,000 languages, different than any other book humans have ever seen. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Folks, there is something powerful and amazing about this book. Now, now listen, whether you believe it or not, that's not my job to convince you. No one can convince you. Only God can do that. But I simply want to show you some reasons today why it does not make you a fool to believe the Bible. The, there are reasons to believe the Bible as authentic, accurate, and authoritative, unlike anything the world has ever seen. Now, in your notes, here's what we believe. The Bible is not dead history. It is alive and well. It is not just a historical revelation of who God was. It is a present revelation of who God is. It's more than just a record of what God did in the lives of people long ago. It is a promise of what God can do if you will allow Him to in your life today. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, more than anything else, this is what convinces me. I've only been here for, I think, about seven months now as pastor, but I've already shared with you the truth about me and my life, that I am a natural-born skeptic. Faith does not just come easily to me on my own. 
And I've shared with you the seasons of doubt from my past where I was not sure that I could believe in this kind of God or that I could believe in this book. But folks, one of the great things that has convinced me is seeing the power and authority that is resident here in God's word. The hidden layers of truth that are here when you begin to dig down deep beneath the surface. And the more I learn, the more I get into his word, the more I see that it has power to reveal the secrets of our human hearts. It's true. It's true. And so for any of you who are here today, like me, who maybe you are a natural-born skeptic, first of all, I'm sorry, (laughs) because it's not the easiest way to live, and I get that. I understand. I relate to that. But I wanted to challenge you to do what I have done and find out for yourself, is the Bible the real deal? And here's why. Because if the Bible is wrong and you believe it, what harm has been done? It simply makes you a more humble, compassionate, loving human being. But if the Bible is right and you reject it, then eternity hangs in the balance. And so this is one of the biggest questions in life. Is the Bible true? This coming weekend, we have a special guest. We've been talking about this for a little while. Dr. Steve Lennox is going to be here to lead us through a deep Bible study of the book of Psalms on Sunday, Saturday morning from 9 to 12. And then he'll be back with us, helping us utilize some of the tools and methods that we talked about last week in order to study a particular psalm and put these things into practice that we've been talking about. But what many of you do not know is the reason this is significant to me is because Dr. Steve Lennox has had more influence on how I study the Bible than any other human being. He was my professor. I had him in a class, a Bible studies class on the book of John, the very first year he was a professor after he had finished his PhD. Now you want to find out somebody who, uh, who's a hard teacher, get somebody the year after they finish their PhD, take their class and see how hard it is. Because they want to make sure that you learn everything they learned in their 10 years of study. <laughs> but we became good friends and he has been hugely helpful for me. We also have spent time traveling with Steve Lennox in Israel, Tracy and I both. And I want to tell you today again, I have probably learned more from Dr. Lennox, who will be here this coming weekend, about how to study the Bible than anyone else. He is truly one of the great Bible scholars of our time, and we are honored to have him here. Here's a closing thought. I want you to think about this. Mark chapter 4, verse 4 says, Be sure to put into practice what you hear. Everybody say, put into practice what you hear. And Jesus says in Mark 4, 4, because the more you do this, the more you will understand. The more you do this, the more you will understand 
what I tell you. And here's what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 4, verse 4. The more you begin to study this word and put it into practice, the more you will begin to understand the heart of God and the more you will begin to look at the world and the way that people live and the confusion that exists in our society. And when you see it through the eyes of God, things start to make a lot more sense. Would you stand with me? See, the more you learn, Jesus says, and the more faith you have to put it into practice, the more it begins to make sense. There are some of you here today who you know enough about Jesus and his death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. You know enough to receive him but you have not yet put it into practice, and so it doesn't make sense. You've not yet surrendered your life to Him, and so all of this still seems like foolishness to you, but today, maybe the Spirit of God is speaking into your spirit and increasing your faith. And maybe today is your day of surrender, where you will finally say, Jesus, I trust you. Let's pray together. And if that's where you are today, would you just in your heart right now say, Father, I confess that I have sinned. I've tried to do life on my own. I have lived according to the teachings of this world rather than the teachings of your word. And today I surrender myself to you. Come in and have your way. I receive your forgiveness. I make you my Lord and my Savior. I surrender my life to you. And even though I don't fully yet understand it, together with the people in this church, I will seek, as Jesus said, to put it into practice with faith that here in the Bible are the words of eternal life. And so together, we make our declaration to follow you, Jesus. Would you sing this together? Sing the words of this old song.